Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Tony Thomas. Tony is a retired four-star general in the U.S. Army, and he served as the commander of the U.S. Special Forces Command from 2016 to 2019 during his 35-year military career. He played a key role in numerous high-profile operations, including the mission that resulted in the death of Osama bin Laden. He's currently a partner at Lux Capital. Tony, welcome to World of DAS. One minor correction, because we're very tribal. You said the commander of special forces. It's actually Special Operations Command. I'm very sorry. Okay. When people talk about Special Forces, Special Operations Command, give us a quick primer on the big difference. Yeah, Special Operations Command is the 75 to 80,000 persons command that owns and operates all of U.S. Special Operations Forces, which includes Special Forces, Rangers, SEALs, I got it. Special Operators, Pilots, etc. But the distinction sometimes lost is Special Forces are your Green Berets, a very distinct grouping among Special Operation Forces. Okay, perfect. That's great. Now, one piece of history that maybe isn't widely understood is how fundamental the military was to the internet and Silicon Valley in general. This doesn't seem like it's as important today. How do you think the military in Silicon Valley could be more in lockstep today? It is fascinating to me that history is tending to repeat itself here, although there's been a gap that folks are acknowledging. You can do a cursory search of the nexus of Silicon Valley specifically and other places of innovation and the military. And it was certainly very, very vibrant in the 50s and 60s. In the heat of the Cold War, through the 80s, you could argue, and it begat a bunch of things that you mentioned, the internet, GPS, all sorts of other modern commodities that are very common now. I would offer that about the end of the Cold War, 90, much like it was for us as a country, strategically, we kind of lost focus and purpose in terms of national defense. Yeah, we even Uh, cut our military budget and it was a peace dividend, essentially. We did it. It wasn't inappropriate. It was with the thought that, hey, this was the last great challenge that we hoped to face, hope not being a method, but then enter into 9-11, 2001, and you saw that we were back out in what people would call a shooting war. It wasn't until, and interestingly, I'll point to a kind of a pivotal event that I think has brought it into focus, and that was the Google experience with Maven. I was on the other end. I was a practitioner. I was a customer. And we were excited about using the power of AI and other technologies to make us better, to help our decision-making, to help us discern our military targeting, if you will, although that is off-putting to some. But in the height of that, during Maven, the Google workforce obviously said, hey, we don't want to be any part of war. Again, I think it was cathartic for the Google. It was cathartic for the whole system as Google's now back into participating with the DOD along with the other major tech companies. So I think you saw a reticence to be part of this and then an acknowledgement that in the world we live in, you can elect not to be part of it, but certainly our adversaries don't suffer that similar shortcoming in terms of their technological approaches. And some tech companies will draw some sort of distinction like, hey, you can use our AI for logistics if you want to deliver food to troops, but I don't want you using our AI to like shoot somebody or something. Do you see that those lines can be blurred or how do you see those people drawing those lines? It's going to be tougher and tougher to draw that distinction in the future, I think. We can enter into the discussion and we certainly can help policy development by testing some of these areas. The first application for us in special operations was helicopter maintenance. It was predictive maintenance based on AI. We had the data. We just weren't leveraging it very well. 
But that was a relative. And, and then preventive maintenance is making some sort of prediction that some part needs to be replaced before it actually goes bad in an operation or something like that. Exactly, which a lot of airlines already do. Basically, there's a number of them that don't. They just haven't embraced that technology yet. But we thought that was a pretty innocuous first step into applied machine learning and or AI. I kind of draw a distinction there. But there are other places where you can and should use it that I think are palatable to folks that don't want to be into war making. But to me, it's such a distinction because, again, we as a Department of Defense run on logistics, communication, medical support, things that seem benign, but they're integral to the war fighting effort. So far removed from targeting and things like that that are very, very provocative. We're recording this one year into the war in Ukraine. What do you think some of the non-obvious takeaways are from a U.S. military side of what we can learn from that war? No one predicted we would be where we are now. A lot of experts are saying they did. I could play back what they were saying a year ago now. They thought it was going to be a shorter war, Russia moving very, very quickly, et cetera. Right. And interestingly, the U.S. played a hand that we hadn't before. We had copious amounts of intelligence that indicate Russia was serious about launching an invasion. We played that ahead of time. There were a lot of deniers out there, and sure enough, Putin came across. I think certain key takeaways are we had greatly overestimated the Russian armed forces. A pretty armed force, a lot of new technological platforms, terrible, terrible in terms of military professionalism. It can be attributed to leadership. It can be attributed to doctrine and training, but they're just really bad. We overestimate them. It's hard to like combine different arms, so it's like... Some of the U.S. does a very good job of, okay, we've got planes and we've got people on the ground and we've got drones. And doing that takes a lot of coordination. That does seem like an area that maybe Russia has not performed as well. Or do you agree? Agree completely. I mean, we still have friction between our armed forces, our services, but it's a good friction. It's a, I can provide better effects with my service, but we force ourselves to be joint over, again, institutional friction and inertia, but we are inherently joint and we are, in that sense, the most powerful, most effective military on the planet. The Russians are not capable of joint operations and it's playing out in a large part. They also, I think, underestimated the fight in the Ukrainian people. I mean, these are people fighting for their freedom, for their sovereignty, and for the Russians to think they were just going to march into Kiev and literally had their dress uniforms in their tanks and their armored personnel carriers for the victory parade they thought was going to follow was a huge underestimation. So juxtapose those two together. And I think you've got where we are now. Now, I do think- Have we learned anything about how we should be planning better? We should be doing things differently or technology we should be investing in? Yes. And I think we're also certainly smarter from our experience by, with, and through the Ukrainians. So obviously we are openly helping them in terms of armament. We're openly helping them in terms of intelligence and preparation. We're not actively in the fight. Not yet. I hope we don't get to that point. But right now, we are fighting through the Ukrainians who are literally just asking for the equipment right now. They've not made a play for armed forces from other organizations. But we've learned a lot through them. I think we are better by the experience. If it was us fighting the Russians, we would be much, much more capable. It would be a very lopsided fight. What I did want to mention, though, I'm not poo-pooing, and this is certainly the hold card that's out there, And that's Russia's nuclear capability. I mean, at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, this is an existential threat. That's why, to me, it's so important. And again, Putin was just this last week rattling his nuclear saber again. We can't poo-poo that a megalomaniac might not go that direction. 
And that's why we've lived with all these years of mutually assured destruction, et cetera, of nuclear capability that can match or exceed another power's capability. Who gains from the conflict, this Ukrainian-Russian conflict that's happening? It seems like China certainly gains, maybe Iran gains. Who are the winners? Certainly, the Ukrainians are the losers. Right now, the Russians are the losers as well. Who are the winners? Well, I think an interim winner. I don't know that I would say that China's a winner. You don't think so? I mean, with China, like Russia becomes much more in their orbit. They have to be relying on them much more. They don't have to put any treasure into the fight, but it kind of keeps America occupied on Ukraine and not as much on China. You don't think China is a winner? There might be a tangential benefit just with the occupied and not focused on Taiwan. That's a lot of opinion pieces on that. I think we can juggle more than one ball at the same time. One, I think Xi Jinping was surprised. He was not informed that Russia was going to make this play ahead of time. They hadn't considered through the implications. And the awkward part for them is they're trying to cozy up to European powers about the same time. And that's diametrically opposed to where Europe is. I would offer one of the winners in this, which I would never have predicted. In fact, I was at a dinner with Gary Kasparov back in January of 2020, right before COVID started. Someone asked me about NATO. And I said, okay, my opinion, retired general, I don't represent anybody anymore. My opinion, I think NATO is irrelevant. I think it's lost its purpose. And I used an analogy. I said, in my discussions with my Spanish counterpart, I don't think Spain will go to war for Lithuania, Latvia, or Estonia. Kasparov, this is a dinner, by the way, trotting me out as a member of this venture firm. Kasparov almost dove across the table at me and said, General, you are too far to the West. Germany will not go to war for Russia. And while I defer to my Russian friend, but think of from January of 2020, we now have Finland and Sweden who want to be part of NATO because they fear Russia more than they fear being part of NATO. And you've got arguably some solidarity, albeit with Turkey always playing the outlier, with NATO towards this common enemy for a country that's not part of NATO. For Ukraine, it's distinctly not part of NATO. For all the folks that think our NATO expansion was too provocative, my first visit there was in 2010. And I described in my journal, Ukraine as dour. Why did I use the word dour? They just seemed really, really sad because they'd just been told no for NATO and no for EU. And so there they were sitting between NATO and EU and Russia, foundering for what are we part of, if not to be part of the West that they wanted to be. But we had told them no. So much for being so provocative for Russia. Almost same question. Almost 20 years ago, the U.S. invaded Iraq. Who were the winners of that? I mean, certainly maybe the Iraqi people were winners. Certainly the U.S. and most people now think we're the loser. Maybe the Gulf region was a winner. Maybe Iran was the big winner. Is that the big winner? How would you, if you had to score that? First off, I'd score as a bad war. We had just entered Afghanistan for what I thought were legitimate reasons. One, to get the perpetrators from 9-11. Two, to make sure we never had another 9-11 come out of there. Now, that led to a bad strategy. I think we could have done a counter-terrorist light approach to Afghanistan and not tried to get in a nation building, which we convinced ourselves we weren't going to do. But a year later, we did a student body left to Iraq for what I think was unfinished business. I think it goes back to those who were in leadership at the time, what they thought of Saddam, and intelligence that turned out to be nothing, turned out to be false intelligence. We certainly took a black eye for it. And interestingly, it's now being played, kind of the venue of world opinion, what's different between you going to Iraq and Russia going to Ukraine? I would argue we didn't go to Iraq to colonize it. We didn't yep. go to Iraq to take the royal. We don't do that. That's not our style. We went after a bad guy. We have public enemy number one syndrome. If we have a problem, that's one of our problems that we always seize on a bad guy. Did the Middle East make out better from this? 
I, again, kind of controversial, my personal opinion. I think Iraq is the vestige of colonial cartographers. Thomas Friedman has a great line in one of his op-eds where he says, never trust a country with straight line borders. <laughs> if you look at Iraq, it's a awkward, artificial construction of a Shia population, a Sunni population, and a Kurdish population who have little to nothing in common other than we branded them as Iraq. And they've been fighting betwixt and between themselves ever since or with other issues. So I'm hopeful for Iraq, but I don't put long stock in it only because of their internal dissension. And then interesting in our current time, they're all kind of together with one common focus, and that's Iran. So even Israel's in the mix with Arab neighbors now with one common enemy, Iran. So the Middle East, I think, continues to confound us in terms of a strategy policy approach. But the latest mix has relative Arab-Israeli unity vis-a-vis Iran, but that's certainly pretty fickle as well. Why can't you have a country with lots of different minorities? If you look at Iran, I mean, they have a huge Azerbaijani minority, and they've got lots of other types of things. And if you look at almost any country in that region, but even if you think of Europe and how Europe was started, you had all these different tribes that end up forming countries and stuff like that. Like, what's wrong with having different minorities in a country forming together. I mean, look at us. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just a matter of, do they have a sense of nation? A sense of a nation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm amazed. I spent a lot of time in the KRG, aka Kurdistan, Kurdish governance, been designated. I mean, when people pull back from this, this is literally 30 million people strewn between Turkey, Syria, Iran, and Iraq that are kind of amorphous. They've had conquerors come and go. They've changed religions. They've changed flags, but they never became a country. They're part of all those countries now. In some cases, they're thriving. In other cases, they're badly oppressed. But whether it's a sense of nationhood or a sense of tribalism, people, et cetera, that's kind of forever debate, right? People have been disparaging the overclassification of secrets for a long time. Yet, at least from my standpoint, it seems to be getting worse and worse every single year. A lot of what's deemed as quote-unquote secret seems to be widely known by the public. Why does that persist? And is there anything we can do about it? We have had a tendency to overclassify for years. Humorously, it's now being challenged by the amount of classified information that's being found in the homes and garages of politicians. (laughs) I'm sure some of that might be very, very, very secret, but probably some of that is not really secret, quote unquote, right? I agree. I'd go back to what's the purpose for classification? I think we can understand in that sense why we would classify certain things that, hey, it would risk sources and methods, it yep. would put people in harm's way, et cetera. It might be also from technology, as we talk technology today, that, hey, this gets in the wrong hands, this would be bad news. Yeah. So those things should be classified, but the rest of it, you got to wonder. You'll find on my bio that I'm a member of the Delta Force. Delta is still classified. Yeah, that's where we are. There's just nothing to do about it. It does seem like there's more things being classified. It's going in the wrong direction. I don't know that you'll fix it. I think Smart people are still intent on using it in the appropriate applications. And then we do need to deal with the rest of it. Is um, part of the reason just like job security and just feeling important and stuff? Or If you look at security clearances, I'll take one of my favorite bugaboos. I mean, we have legions of badge-carrying individuals that go around and periodically ask you, did you ever do anything to harm your country? It is so rote. Yep. You almost have to catch yourself by not saying the wrong yes or no at the right time. But think, again, back towards the technology we have right now. Do an AI-enabled internet search of Thomas or whoever. Are they 
showing the right tendencies, the wrong tendencies. That's a better investigation, by the way, than decide whether or not should they still have a security clearance going forward. But again, part of it is the bureaucracy that I don't think we're able to shed. But I hope that we continue to use classification for the right reasons going forward. Now, on the military readiness side, U.S. debt has been growing every day. And now with higher interest rates, the dollars need to service that debt really rival what we spend on defense. Are you worried that the debt is going to eat our defense spending appetite? I don't pretend to be an economist or any yeah. professional in a sense. I am worried about our debt. Usually when I get in conversations with people who are a lot more qualified than I am, I come away with the impression, hey, our trump card is we'll default. We're in debt, we're in debt, we're in debt, but nobody can call us on it because we're inextricably tied to others. That doesn't make me feel more comfortable. And it doesn't work either because we still have a huge deficit every year. So you can't default on your debt when you still need to borrow from the same people because then no one will lend to you. If we had a surplus, then yeah, we can just default on it or we could inflate ourselves out of it or some other type of thing. Yeah, the only pushback I'd give you there is we continue to print money for with resources we don't have. I don't understand all that again. (laughs) Join the club. I don't know if anyone understands it, yeah. (laughs) Um, But I am concerned, and this may be somewhat controversial to some of your listeners, as a guy who worked in the government for 39 years, we do not use taxpayer money effectively, period, end of statement. The fact that we're just about to go over $800 billion in this year's budget, trending to $1 trillion within three years at the current rate of advance, and with Ukraine brewing, with China brewing, I don't think we can get to tighten the belt at all. I think that's way too much money for defense when we would make better decisions if we were more constrained. So in some ways, maybe it could be a good thing because we now are going to have to make some harder choices about things. Well, the hard choices now are, and this is kind of a no-brainer, we don't have enough ammunition right now to fight active wars. We didn't have it for Korea. We don't have it for China and Taiwan. We don't have it for Ukraine. And all of a sudden, people are waking up to the fact that our military industrial base actually has faded towards a latency that has to be picked up if we're going to even consider fighting one of those kind of wars. My bigger concern is we're using that amount of money also to reinvest in platforms that I think are obsolete. And the one I've been most public about are aircraft carriers. We are building two more aircraft carriers now while they're cheap at $15 billion a copy. I can remember Trump challenging the CNO at one of our dinners at the White House on, is that the best thing money can buy? This is back in 2017. I would offer that our biggest adversaries know how we come to fight. They have armed themselves very, very adequately to defeat gray hulls. They're a big target. You can't like quickly move them away. The best power projection platform we've had for 75, 80 years. So a great, great platform. But I'm offering that it's now fading to obsolescence when people know that that's our strength, know that that's our technique. We should be refinancing, reorienting on better other capabilities that'll allow us to fight and win in the future. Most of the budget goes to people and then later to the benefits of those people. Do you think we have too many people? Without a doubt. You look at our bureaucracies, much less our services. So you could either start at the tip of the spear with warfighters, supposed warfighters. And I'm a big advocate that your importance is not your proximity to the fight. So we need logisticians, we need communicators, we need transporters, et cetera. But you could crawl backwards from where we actually close with the enemy and do the number counting there. Or you could start at these bloated headquarters and bloated services and bloated defense department where arguably we could do with half those people. I'll be disparaged for being loose with the numbers there, but we should have a really, really tough discussion on where is their value added from this entity or this group of people, to your point, that we can't afford. 
we can't afford it going forward. So how do you make the necessary cuts? Much like the corporate world's doing right now. If there's a practical example, it's right in front of us. Now, speaking of personnel, the progression within the U.S. military can be a bit formulaic, at least from my perspective, from the outside. Like I know it took you eight years to go from captain to major, five to go from major to lieutenant colonel, five more from lieutenant colonel, full colonel, six years to go from colonel to brigadier general. And you're still became one of the youngest generals out there. Is that set progression in military a feature? Some people argue it's a feature or is it a bug? Even with my now detached perspective, and I've told people, I joke with people, I didn't get any smarter in retirement, but now I have a different perspective on some things. I think it's a feature, less a shortcoming than a feature because of just the experience and the professional knowledge that you have to amass over time to be effective at a senior leadership level, much less a mid-career level. I was always lucky to serve at the next higher headquarters before I came down. So I served at the Ranger Regiment before I served at a Ranger Battalion. I served at JSOC before I served at Delta. And where I might otherwise be inclined by my immature perspective on things to wonder, what's the value of that higher headquarters? I benefited by having served at that higher headquarters to be able to understand, okay, this is the stuff they do that we don't want to do. They can be bureaucratic, they can be bloated, but here's actually some value of having that higher entity as we deal with each other. Because of that, maybe it's hard for military to bring in outsiders who may have like a specific expertise. Like if you want to bring in somebody, let's say at a lieutenant colonel level, it's very difficult to just bring somebody in. Is that something that should be reformed or is that also a feature? I've been knee deep in the experimentation on all of this. And we are really trying. I mean, we realize that our insular military can only succeed by leveraging the incredible potency of what's outside us, what's around us. The things that work against it are culture, profession, and then, you know, the bottom line, pay. I tried out to people that, hey, you know, I could ask you, what does a kid come out of college who's a data scientist expect to get as an initial entry job out in the valley? I imagine you would tell me probably 160, 180, 200K, depending on how much. That's not nearly that high anymore. It's gone down a bit, I think, yeah. (laughs) But my point being is we don't pay near that. We don't pay that for senior officers, but it's not about the pay. So acknowledging that that's the hard part, I think it reinforces the part that we started on earlier, and that's partnership. Partnership with venture, partnership with technology. And how do you engender that where we literally have partnerships that are about our shared goals and objectives going forward? The paradigm is kind of flipped on me at SOCOM where we were chasing technology everywhere. We were in the Valley, we were in Austin, we were at Carnegie Mellon. We were chasing it being the operative phrase. And our chief data officer, a guy named Dave Spurk, who went on to be the DOD chief yep. data officer, incredibly talented guy, flipped the paradigm by inviting venture and AI leads under our tent to go visit our forces, to see them in the field. And the results were extraordinary. They came back bustling with ideas, how to solve problems, how to help us, that I think is just the seed corn for what we should be doing in the future to really work the partnerships more effectively. How can we do that? A lot of people talk about the bureaucracy and red tape and the procurement process of selling into the government and stuff. And it does seem like it is getting easier. So that's a good thing. Like there's all these new systems that are out there. There's these SIBRs and there's the DIA and a bunch of other things to make it easier to sell into government. But are there other ways of helping companies do that better? I knew we were hard when I was wearing the uniform. Now that I'm outside, I'm thinking, oh my God, I didn't realize how very, very hard. (laughs) So I am actively trying to help companies and getting a few more reps while I'm doing it. 
partly are the regs that exist, partly it's Congress, partly it's the primes that in some yep. cases are helpful, some cases they're obstructionist, anything that might change their feeding patterns at the trough of the military budget. But I would go back to something that I wish in one of my many do-overs. Too often I had well-meaning staff officers, especially at the highest level at SOCOM here, that would say, hey, sir, don't get too close to this one. There are contractual implications, blah, blah, blah. I didn't sign a single contract as the SOCOM commander, not one. I could tell you the companies that I'm either popular in their ranks or not popular because of decisions I made, but I wish I had been more active kind of in the mosh pit of practitioners, programmers, and companies to really see what was best of breed. And more importantly, here are our practitioners, our folks, the problem solvers, get at what is the best capabilities out there. So yeah. my real advocacy is senior leader decision maker involvement. Too often our decision makers are sitting back waiting for the last best PowerPoint slide or presentation to come to them. That's the wrong approach. They need to be actively in the game every day, especially with modern technology. We have too many senior leaders that are making the big AI hand wave and they don't wrestle with it every day. And if they're not, then they're not challenging themselves. I think they're too prideful in some cases that, ooh, it hurts. I didn't grow up thinking this way. I don't understand the language. Hey, no worries. Wrestle with it. Get to know it because otherwise you're not going to be effective for the department at the speed that we need right now. Now, I know you're a big proponent of AI in military and stuff like that. How far should we be trusting AI to make decisions? How much human review should we have? How do you think about those things? The times we live in, right? I work for one of the bigs. At a recent meeting, the discussion was all about ChatGPT and what it meant going forward. And then I went the next week to New York to an AI company I worked for, and it was, hey, is this going to displace us? You know, how's this? <laughs> think about just the times we're living in right now. My point being is the technology, I think, is always going to outpace the policy discussions. So my concern is, and there's a brand new policy paper out, it's in my to-read list right after I finish with you today, You know, a document that's, I guess, first big stab at the strictures and policies that should approach. I think those are good, healthy discussions. I think that's our Western way of approaching it to make sure we're doing things the right way. Unfortunately, I think this technology is going to lead turn, and I don't think it's too far off. I know Schmidt and others have used the nuclear analogy. Think of an alternative universe where someone else developed nukes before we did and used them before we did, and then didn't drive the discussion of how should we not blow ourselves all up here going forward. The U.S. needs to compete very, very aggressively. The U.S. and the Western world need to compete very aggressively, as much because our adversaries are untrammeled right now. They're going as hard, as fast as they can to leverage AI, to leverage unmanned going forward, and we have to compete. And how we bring that policy discussion along to make sure it's cognizant of the tough world we're living in is really the challenge. This is a data podcast. A lot of AI is built on top of data. In fact, if you think of chat and GPT, it's really just built through just crawls of data that's out there. But like chat GPT, the AI can make some really weird decisions if the data is wrong. And if you just ask basic questions of chat GPT, often it'll tell you all these things that are like, don't make any sense. Even if you ask about your own bio, which is like, you know, on Wikipedia, it may make a bunch of stuff up and stuff like that. Have you thought about how we get the data right, the input to the AI? I think it unavoidably comes back to still the importance of a human in a loop, quote unquote, to reinforce and or to address the biases that have been built into the systems. I can't even imagine a human doing this, but imagine if you just digested what we grew up on, Encyclopedia Britannica's or whatever, and you just had that all in your head, and then whatever current events are out there, depending on your news source, again, 
Are you getting it from this news source, that news source, social media, whatever? And then, okay, spit out an answer to me. It's going to be a little bit unrefined. It certainly hasn't had human intellect to discuss competing points and say, okay, based on what I've heard here, I'm now making an educated decision, at least educated, acknowledging my biases. So I think it reinforces the importance of humans in the loop as we refine this. And the other part, I would draw a distinction, and this is long before we go to Skynet and what everybody's afraid about, the distinction between machine learning and artificial intelligence. I think most of what's going on really is pattern analysis right now. It's churning through reams of data and showing patterns, whether it's voice recognition, facial recognition, et cetera. AI, I think the distinct leap is discerning and deciding, whether it's a recommendation to a human or actually deciding for a human that, hey, in this complex moment, this is a decision you have to make. That's arguably the more provocative aspect. And I would argue it's a smaller slice of applied machine learning and AI going forward that we really should be wrestling with. Because I do think there are applications in a future fight, in a future world, where it's going to be too complex for a human to digest all the information available that we will have to defer to a decision-making capability. And think of massive amounts of inbound, you pick the weapons. I think that'll defy a human's ability to make those decisions in a coherent, competitive fashion. That's the worst case, but it's where we're headed. We live in a time where institutions are not as revered as they once were, and they're less trusted than they once were, including the military. The trust in even an institution like the military has gone down dramatically over time. I have a few questions about that, but why do you think that trust has declined in all institutions? I'm personally very disappointed that all sorts of recent polls have indicated that the military has dropped in terms of the trust and confidence of the United States citizens. It was to me a point of pride before that good, despite all the turmoil, we are considered to be a solid profession that's focused on, and here's the big distinction, and I certainly play it, I'll be playing it to an audience next week of military professionals, is that we are committed to defending the Constitution of the United States, not an individual, not a flag, the Constitution of the United States, that living document against all enemies, foreign and domestic. For 39 years, I'd raise my right hand for promotion ceremonies or enlistment ceremonies and say, repeat after me, blah, 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 support, defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. The foreign part was intuitive to me. I served in every major combat action for the last 40 years. So that I knew when the country said, go there, do this, that was intuitive. I never, ever reflected until recently on the domestic part. And the fact that we now have been politicized by almost every cut of cloth of politician out there as being faulty for one reason or another, instead of, no, this is our military. These are specially selected professionals who are prepared to do the ultimate sacrifice for the country, if need be. We've really lost that. We've been muddled into the discussion. And certainly we've had a a couple of missteps that I can't deny that we need to be accountable for in terms of leadership and accountability. But it's unfortunate that it's a sign of the times. It's where we are. The trust in all institutions have gone down dramatically. The trust in military is still higher than almost every other even if you think of the press or academia or Congress or whatever the institution is, all of which has gone down over time. What do you think is the reason why trust in general has gone down so much? I kind of joke that I was in combat for six and a half years, and it wasn't like I was there the whole time. But as I came back, so to speak, and got reimmersed in the American public, I'm just dismayed at the level of vitriol and the kind of discourse that we're having that's not about what brings us together our shared 
culture, our shared constitution. It's more how different we are. And obviously, the military has been assailed. The other, the CIA, State Department, others that normally had some respectability have either been politicized by individuals and or by external opinions where it's come to really cause a lot of Americans to lose faith completely. The other problem I think we have as a military, and my family's as guilty as any other, is we're too darn insular. So the good news about an all-volunteer force is we all know what we're signing up for. We, you know, and get to it for longer term, we definitely know what we're signing up for. Both my sons went to West Point. Both of them have served in combat. One of them is still serving, just as I mentioned, took off the cloak of an infantryman and is now at medical school. My oldest son served several tours in combat. But that is part of the problem, that we are less and less representative of the citizenry. And it's a good news story. Our kids like their experience. They want to grow up in that experience. They've got a lot of other opportunities that they're opting out of. But I do think it makes us more insulated from the American public that we ostensibly serve. Yeah, it's interesting. Until a year ago, I spent my entire adult life in San Francisco. And it was very rare, actually, to meet anybody who had served in the military. Occasionally, you would meet somebody, but extremely rare. Now that I live in the D.C. area, it seems like half the people I meet have served at one point or have done something in government or something in service. So there is a place, like, depending on where you are in the country, it does seem like the more south you get in the country, the more likely you are to meet people who have been in the military. And it does seem like some of the power centers of the country, whether it's New York or San Francisco or LA, you're going to have a lot fewer people that you would meet from the military. Right. No, I agree. What's interesting, I've not found any less support in some of those places. And this is where I'd be critical of our military and our defense assessment. We enjoy the great support of the American people still, despite the declining polls, et cetera. But we've done a terrible job of explaining what the hell we're doing, and especially in my line of work, where I had people in 80 different countries on any given day. Right now, special operators are in 80 different countries around the world right now. Back to the classification point. In many cases, we weren't allowed to talk about what we were doing, but you would have thought that would have been a part of the discourse in Congress or you know, among our leadership on where and why do we have America's national treasure to do what in the pursuit of what strategy? It really came a cropper, unfortunately, when we lost our four special forces, Green Berets, in Niger back in 2017, 2018 timeframe. And the hue and cry was, whoa, what are we doing in Niger? There had just been a National Geographic special that had explained what we were doing in Niger to help other people develop capability to deal with their own problems so that we wouldn't have to put large numbers of U.S. troops on the ground if it came to a crisis. To me, those are pretty good uses of our special operations forces to avoid a crisis, to avoid larger military applications. But they weren't explained. Certain parts of Congress knew about it, but the great American public had no idea where we are and what we're doing. And that I think talks is there a to point us. where we're doing too many things like 80 countries does seem like a lot. And even if we're only sending 50 people there or something, it does seem hard to even keep track of and to understand and understand if this is a good use, et cetera. Absolutely, especially if there's no constructive strategy. And one of my biggest criticisms since 1990, since the wall fell, and ironically, the same time Tiananmen Square happened, where we became the world superpower. We didn't ask for that. We didn't know what to do with it. We stopped having strategy discussions. We stopped having really forceful, substantive discussions on, okay, we're not the imperial power of the world. We're a cultural dynamo that's irresistible. It may put people's thought that we spew more culture out to the world, but we're not forcing it on anybody, I don't think. But how do we, from a strategic sense, maintain our standard of living, 
certainly our, the protection of our country and our people and our way of life, we lost all that. And so I don't know that we're any more deployed now than we were back then, but there is no strategic context for what we're doing until now and, and driven by one real shooting war and one potential shooting war, and that's Ukraine and Taiwan. And all of a sudden, we're having some really substantive discussions, but it's really, in my mind, the larger, it's not a game, but the larger game of risk in terms of where does the U.S. fit in this scheme. I'd offer, i tell one anecdote that I thought I was ready for retirement, but I really blew one step. I was traveling like a rock star as a four-star general. I had a plane or planes to get me anywhere I wanted to go. I didn't apply for TSA preferred. When I retired, I was at the back of the queue with everybody else. I finally got to the interview. My wife sent me a virtual globe. I was in a hotel somewhere. And she said, hey, last step, you got to list all the places you've been. Oh, no, that's crazy. (laughs) So I sat in a hotel and I started playing with this globe. And at the end of it, I started the Middle East, Africa, Pacific, et cetera. And I said, baby, what are we, about 50 countries? And she said, no, 73. (laughs) To my interview with the TSA guys, and she had told them, hey, former SOCOM guy, former CIA guy, et cetera. And they said, hey, sir, we know what you did. But if we didn't know what you did, you have the traffic pattern of either an arms dealer, a sex trafficker, or a narco-terrorist. So, <laughs> my point being, though, when I say that, I tell this to a bunch of audiences, and I usually get some pretty good pushback. I said, every single one of those countries, whether it was Mongolia to the Emirates, to anywhere in between, every single one of those countries sitting with presidents, crown princes, ministers of defense, you'd pick it. They all had one burr about the United States, and they would get that out of their system quickly. But in every case, and I can't think of an exception, They came back to me and said, General, if you take no message home other than one, please beg your leaders to stay involved in this world, because if the United States doesn't stay involved, dot, 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 you know, bad things will happen. Every time they tell me that, I think, wow, that's a heavy burden for us. I mean, sure. and usually when I play that to an audience, I'll say, I know some of you right now are on the edge of your seat saying, we are not the world's policemen. And I couldn't agree more. But what role do we play to make sure we are safe, we are defended, and that we try to provide as much stability as possible for this ecosystem to continue short of a major disruption? Though it does seem like the public has become much more isolationist, both about military things, about trade, about a whole bunch of other things over the past decade or so. And it seems that trend does not seem to be stopping there So it does seem like the support for some of these endeavors may go down over time, or do you not agree? I absolutely agree. To me, it's deja vu all over again. Go back to preceding World War I, World War II. But here's the concern, and it's been certainly a conversation I've been having with a lot of folks lately. We cannot compete with China one-on-one. Read Graham Allison. Read any number of books that talk about just the demographic challenges. The economy that, ironically, we underpinned. We created the Chinese economy. We created our dependency on the Chinese economy. But if you go toe-to-toe with China right now, and I'm discounting militarily because I think we still have a military advantage, it's an imbalanced playing field. So to the point, we can compete with China. If we bring in India, we have our natural allies, Australia, New Zealand. But if we somehow are tighter, more cooperative with India, and I'm talking about in a cooperative sense, not in a brew up and put troops on everybody's border. The Philippines now is wide open for business again. Who would have thought that wasn't the case before? Japan is building out their defense forces because they think they live in a bad neighborhood, Korea, et cetera. But if you think of, okay, the United States with partners, hey, we can compete. We can compete commercially, economically. We can compete militarily. And what is the balance of power that we're looking for here? We should also acknowledge with China that, 
hey, you've got some territorial ambitions or historical things that you haven't voiced for a long time, and now they're out actively on the plate. What do we need to acknowledge is truly legit, and where should we come to some compromise? The flashpoint, obviously, is Taiwan. We've had a president who just recently on 60 Minutes said, we will commit U.S. troops to Taiwan if the Chinese invade. That was precedent setting. That has never been part of strategic ambiguity up to now. I am curious how the Chinese took that. Was that a trigger event? Was that a what just happened moment? And of course, we try to pull it back from an administration standpoint, and I don't think we're good enough to play good cop, bad cop. But the point being, okay, is Taiwan in our vital national interest? First discussion we should have. From there, if so, to what level are we willing to commit to it? Someone the other day pointed out possibly a really strong diplomatic play of, hey, we accepted conditions for Hong Kong that didn't play out the way people expected, although some would say that played out exactly how we expected it to. Maybe the going in for Taiwan is, hey, you've got a 50 to 100 year period to figure out reunification or not, diplomatically, or whatever the agreement is, instead of, no, we're going to war in 2025, which is what you have some theorists and military leaders saying right now. Whoa, if we're going to war in two years, that's a whole different conversation. You mentioned retiring, and you're not really retired because you're still doing a whole bunch of things and stuff like that. But you certainly had a major career change where you don't have a bunch of planes at your disposal anymore, and you probably just can't call up the president when you want to anymore and stuff like that. How does one or how do you give advice to other people in your situation as they're thinking about retiring? First of all, I never called the president. He called me occasionally. (laughs) That was usually the flip. You know, what's funny is I didn't know until afterwards that there was an inside pool on whether or not I would self-destruct or implode retirement because I loved my profession. I loved the people. I loved the mission. I was overtly very passionate about it. That was a shortcoming to some people, but it was my nature. But I knew it was inevitable. And so at 39 years, when the clock struck, I knew it was time to change. And what I'm happy and I'm very thankful for is that I still had, as a product of, I hope, a balanced approach. I still had my health. I still had my family. I still had the things that were important to me. So I often caution people that it's easy to just burn out hard in the here and now. And then you look back and you got nothing. Just detritus in your wake. You got to have that balance. The one anecdote I tell a bunch of people, and then people, they lose sight. In fact, they think I'm picking on a star situation as opposed to what applies to humanity. And my youngest son would joke with me, Dad, do you think you could just call anybody you want to and get together with them? And I said, yes, Michael, as the SOCOM commander, they don't care about me. They want to touch the fabric of my organization. So on one particular time, I was a fan of Anthony Bourdain's and I liked his show. He was provocative. I didn't agree with everything he said, but it made me think. And I joke with my guys. I said, he's everywhere I can't get right now. He's in Tehran. He's in Libya. (laughs) So he agreed to have dinner with me. And over a rolling dinner, went three hours, just fantastic discussion. I wrote it up on Facebook just because I didn't know what to do afterwards. But two months later or so, he killed himself. So when I wrote it up, I said, you know, here's a guy who just seemed to be more (laughs) switched on, more enlightened, even in person than I thought he was from television. But his tragic end reminds us all of one fact. We are all wrestling with demons that nobody else knows about. And again, people got caught up in, oh, you're just saying about stars. I said, no, no, no. And you can pick an audience. Everybody's yeah. audience is wrestling with a demon. Now, how you offload or discuss that demon with somebody else and relieve yourself is the real challenge. But it's a kind of a national tragedy that we have folks that tend to suicide and other things because they don't have balance. I mean, Bourdain had a 10-year-old daughter that he talked about all the time, but at the end of it, it didn't matter. 
speaking of balance, military is, it can be tough on families because you have to move a lot. And a lot of my friends who have left the military didn't leave because they didn't believe in the mission or the pay or then like their job. It was often like, I just don't want to put my family through one more move. That's just like one too many moves or something like that. And then my kids are going to be teenagers and it's just unfair to them to take them out of their situation. I've heard that so many times. Is that just come with the territory of the job or is there any way to tinker around the edges to make it a little bit more family friendly? The department is aware of that and certain services more so than others. And they are absolutely experimenting with allowing people to quote unquote homestead. But if you want to serve at Fort Bragg, you want to serve at Norfolk or wherever the place might be, that is a decision maker for you from a school standpoint that we're trying to cater to that. Now, what defies that is the pyramid of jobs as you yep. move up that jobs at those places. And as long as you're viable, great. But they're looking at that. They're looking to, to mitigate the impact of all the other things. You talked about the accelerator. I tell everybody who makes the cut for general officer, hey, if you thought it was fast up till now, you will not have more than a one-year assignment from now until you retire. I mean, you might get two years if you're a division commander or something like that. And then at the end, you might get a three-year stint like I did at SOCOM, but it is. Rocket ship is just blasted off. So it does go with the territory a little bit, but folks are trying to figure out a way to make it. And ultimately, it comes down to very, very personal decisions. I have plenty of folks that have been facing that dilemma, and some have just had conversations with their loved ones that, was this the better life for us, or is it too challenging, and do we have to break away? You mentioned about general. So it used to be, just back in the day, by the time you made general, your kids would be out of the house. In many cases, you'd be like a grandfather because people had kids earlier back then. Now people are getting married much later. They're having kids much later. There's a lot of people in their 50s who still have kids in primary school and high school and middle school, et cetera. How does that change the calculus of how things get done? I'll throw one more. You have a lot of dual professionals. Yeah, exactly. You have two professionals as well. And sometimes they're both in the military. And interestingly, so what did the military try and do recently? And caused all sorts of hue and cry, but they mandated paternity leave. Both my kids happened, I think I was in the field the next day or whatever it might've been. And my wife being the strong, independent woman she was just carried on and raised our family for all intents and purposes while I came and went. But the department now is trying to force that recognition that, hey, this is key to keeping families together. It's something we're wrestling with. I don't know how it'll play out over time, but it's certainly a, a challenge. All right, this has been great. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? I knew this was coming and it really made me think. I joke, generalizations are generally wrong (laughs) on my uh, former title. I'm going to flip it on you a little bit because I think one thing that's said, but is chalked up as cliche time and again, is essentially carpe diem, seize the moment, make it matter right now. I think too many folks and I will put it in the context because a lot of us like to journal. I imagine you do too, you know, just to reflect at some point in time on what I accomplished. But whether it's a today journal entry or at the end of the week journal entry or at end of the year journal entry, can you look back and say, I just maximized that 24-hour period or that seven-day period or that 365 period? And most of us can't look in the mirror and say that honestly. We'd, yeah, we're just, no way. There's no way. There's too much time wasting time or whatever. So how do you not just listen to that cliche and not think, how am I attacking every day? How am I making it matter? How am I going to look back and know that I used our most precious resource time as effectively as possible? I would offer it again, I'm flipping a little bit because I don't know of one that 
I would just discard is <laughs> that didn't apply. All right, this has been awesome. Thank you, Tony Thomas, for joining us on World of Das podcast. I follow you at Tony T2 Thomas on Twitter. I encourage our listeners to engage with you there as well. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Oren. Enjoy. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of Das is brought to you by SafeGraph. SafeGraph is geospatial data for physical places. Check it out at safegraph.com. And by Flex Capital. Flex Capital invests in data companies like those we talk about at World of Das. Check it out at flexcapital.com.